Welcome to Bioethics on Air, a program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Jose Alot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. This is part two of my interview with nursing student Elizabeth Nakrevich and nurse educator Diana Kret, discussing an important question that Elizabeth and numerous others have posed to the NCBC. What should I do when I'm instructed by a superior to do something that violates my conscience and or my religious beliefs? In part one of our interview, Elizabeth and Diane addressed ethical challenges facing nursing students, both in the classroom and in clinicals. They discussed, among other things, the American Nurses Association Code of Ethics, hierarchical power dynamics, especially as they impact nurses, and differing interpretations of the term advocacy. In this interview, we discuss practical steps that nursing students and others can take to navigate the ethical landmines of both their training and their professional practice. Elizabeth and Diane, welcome back Hello, for part two. Hello, to be here. Hi, this is wonderful to be with everybody. Um, I'm excited for part two of the, of the dialogue to try to help uh, nursing students and other health professionals navigate through some difficult terrain. Oh, yes. Very difficult terrain. All right. So I'd like to focus part two of our podcast on Elizabeth and Diane, your reactions or your responses to some of what I advise people contemplating taking a job in the medical or the research field who contact the NCBC asking a similar question as Elizabeth's. So I often respond to the question, what should I do when I'm instructed by a super, uh, superior to do something that violates my conscience or my religious beliefs? by offering a series of practical suggestions. So for probably the majority of this interview, I'll, I'll read a number of these suggestions and ask you both to comment on what I say. Feel free to agree, disagree, um, expand upon what I say. Also let me know if the suggestions are feasible or not. All right, so the first thing that I'll advise people to do. And Elizabeth, you mentioned this actually in part one of the interview. So first I tell people, I think it would be a good idea for you to discuss with your instructor or hiring manager, whoever the person is, exactly what you'll be doing in your work. Be upfront with this person about what you are willing to do and not do. And I've been told by people who have had these preemptive conversations that the instructor, employer, whomever appreciates them because one, Everyone is then on the same page, so to speak, in the sense that all parties know where everyone stands. And two, having these conversations in advance can avoid even bigger problems down the road. For example, you don't want to be dealing with the issue in the context of a clinical encounter or even worse, in an emergent situation. So the advice is to have upfront conversations. Elizabeth, your um, comment. I think that's a really good idea and a really important thing to do to bring up with your employer before you even are hired, um, what your boundaries are and what you feel comfortable doing, because then if they have an issue later on, you can tell them, well, I already told you that I didn't feel comfortable with doing this. And you don't, run into so many issues with, oh, we want this urgently done, and then you won't, you won't do it. Yeah, as long as they're receptive to what you say, and I suppose if they're not receptive to your boundaries, then maybe it's someone you don't want to work for. Exactly. Yeah. I was wondering, Elizabeth, have you in your clinicals, and I think you may have talked about this a bit earlier in the, in the previous interview, but have you had any of these conversations or would you have any of these conversations in any of the future clinicals? I, I have haven't had any of these conversations because we haven't come up against that many ethical issues. And the ones we have, it was kind of something I realized after the fact that, oh, yeah, I didn't really feel comfortable doing this. And it's not really something I thought about having a conversation about before a clinical because I guess I had it in my head that, oh, they're not going to ask us to assist with abortions, which they haven't. Um, and um, I right. wasn't in a setting in any of my clinicals where contraception would really be administered because most of the clinicals I've had have been on the floor with older patients. And the administering meds for gender transitioning, that's just something I didn't really think of that I would have to deal with. And 
Now I'm almost done with my clinicals and I'm going to probably be mostly in the ICU for the rest of my clinicals because I'm almost done with school. Um, and the only ethical issues I really expect to come across in the ICU are ones dealing with end of life. And I feel that in the secular medical field, people are a little bit more receptive to dealing with end-of-life ethical issues. For example, the AMA, as far as I know, does not agree with physician-assisted suicide. I don't, you can correct me if that's changed. They're trying to, there's there's forces okay. that are trying to change it or at okay. least move them towards a neutral um, position. But it makes sense that they haven't agreed with that. This is kind of going off on a tangent, but you don't really want to have the AMA saying, oh yeah, we, we're okay with helping people to die. So yeah, that's my take on that. Yeah. I guess I would, I, I maybe something to think about. I mean, Vermont yes, is a state is. where assisted suicide is legal. And so yeah. that could be an issue, um, you know, maybe not in the ICU, but it, it's, it's possibly an yeah. issue that might be one that's worth having a conversation with, uh, with a clinical instructor or, you know, um, yeah, nurse manager. But also since I'm is. a student, if I'm in a situation where someone is eminently dying and they want to, some doctor says, oh, maybe you should just give them some extra morphine. Um, in that situation, since I'm a student, I feel like a superior would definitely be stepping in. Diane, your take on the, the, the advice or the suggestion to have preemptive conversations with uh, potential employers about what you will and will not do. So thank you for the question, Joe. I, I think that uh, we need to talk a little bit about the intrinsic dignity, value, and respect for human beings and our patients. Uh, we've, t- we've kind of alluded to this before, but we haven't like outright spoken about it. So I think as healthcare professionals, we need to be careful to maybe start with that starting point because it's often misinterpreted that Catholic healthcare workers are more um, interested in ascribing to their values, and it's being portrayed as a discriminatory value sometimes today, which is not the case. So I think it's very important not to come running in and saying, I want to work here, and these are all the things I'm not going to do, right? So our presentation, our commitment to the patient, and to the well-being of humanity. That's why we're we're nurses. We we love human beings. We we want to promote health and wellness. And so I think a very good starting place is to state that. Um, and that intrinsic dignity of the human person takes on a whole nother level with our Catholic moral health tradition because we recognize that we as vulnerable human beings, including our patients and their vulnerability are not the end-all be-all, and that we believe in God and a higher power that calls us to respect that dignity in a way that secular humanity doesn't, right? So human life is valuable and it's sacred. Um, And that value and that sacredness is something that we embody and embrace as nurses, as Catholic nurses. That's so super important. And then we can go on to continue with in light of our faith beliefs and our faith and respect for the other, for the person whom we are caring for, who is excessively vulnerable in their illness. These are the things as Catholic healthcare providers that we will not infringe upon a person's dignity in healthcare because of their vulnerability in a way that we feel would be exceedingly harmful to the person and to to us. So so that's an interlude that I would speak of. And then I think that the Veterans Administration, the National uh, Ethics Initiative for most of the VA hospitals, talks about ethics deliberation and healthcare actions and interventions in light of ethics consultations being not them against us, or a right and a value of judgment against another, but as a dialogue of stakeholders who have valuable beliefs, 
an intrinsic understanding of an ethics that's deeply personal for each of us. The patient has those ethical values, the physician has those ethical values, the nurse has those ethical ethical values. And sometimes all of those ethical values in the vulnerability of the patient and what we think is the best or right thing for another comes in tension with one another. And those tensions about what is wrong and what is right in that ethical circumstance sometimes crash with each other. And part of the art of being an ethics consult duty in the hospital system is to evaluate each and every stakeholder's wants, values, beliefs, and to dialogue about those wants, values, and beliefs in a way that's intrinsically full of dignity and respect. Um, And then and only then can we say, this is what I believe I can do and what I cannot do in the complexities of circumstances in healthcare ethics. Because people want a very neat, concise answer for every ethical question that there is. But we know in Catholic healthcare deliberation that that's not the case. The nurse who's working in hospice who wrote in panic to say, someone told me it's a mortal sin to administer morphine to my patients who are dying. My physician ordered a five milligram increase in the patient's or they didn't say five milligram. They said an increase in their morphine to every 15 minutes instead of every 30 minutes. And despite the increase of that morphine administration, my patient is still in distress. We cannot alleviate this patient's pain. Is it a mortal sin to administer morphine to this patient? Oh my goodness, that's a completely different scenario than the scenario that I spoke about in our last podcast. Because that patient was imminently dying with declining vital signs. And my assessment told me that the patient was going to die naturally without significant physical manifestations of pain um, before our own eyes. That I did not need to expedite that death to give a lethal dose of a medication that would cease their respirations. And that's where administering pain medication for the nurse is is, is a practice that we are obliged to adhere to. If a patient's having irretractable pain at moments of death, bone cancer patients need yeah. exceeding large amounts of morphine because nothing gets rid of their pain. And I am a post-op surgical ICU nurse, and I love administering pain medicine for patients in that type of pain. It's my obligation to carefully assess the patient and the circumstances and administer it carefully with the respect that that medication deserves. Um, So in light of that, I would not be willing to administer morphine to expedite death, but I'm very, very willing to administer morphine for someone in pain. So we need to be careful of what we're saying we will and we will not do and how we say it. That's a roundabout way and we can continue the dialogue, Joe, um, for follow-up. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good way a good way of explaining it, um, and I really like the idea of of you know couching the discussion of what you will and will not do based in your understandings of human dignity, um, as well as you know taking into consideration the the various uh, constituencies at play. Very well stated. I like that. Second bit of advice um, is really more personal to the individual. So. You know, for individuals who are, uh, you know, contemplating taking a job where there may be some ethical pitfalls, I'll say this: evaluate your specific employment decision based on the circumstances of your life. Do you and your family, if if you if you have a family, do they need you to take the job, and or is there a proportionate reason for you to accept it? I wouldn't want you to find yourself in a situation where you take a job you really don't need necessarily on the basis that any participation in wrongdoing is only remote. And we're getting into degrees of cooperation here. But then later find out that the situation is much more complicated. So Elizabeth, your, your, your take on that, it's, it's asking the person, you know, with the, with the circumstances of this particular job, um, how does this, you know, how does this work in, in terms of the context well, of your life? Um, your comments. It's very important to me that I can work as a nurse because this is my second time going to college. And so I really don't want to put all this t- 
time into going to school. I've spent most of my life in school and then not even work as a nurse. Um, to me, that would just feel like all this education I have done was such a waste of time. And I, I hope to get married. Um, I hope to marry my current boyfriend. And if I do that, we'll be in a financial situation where I could not work. That, that would work out. But uh, the cost of living is so high, especially I live in Vermont. Um, so the cost of living is, is right. not low here. And um, just coupled with um, being able to live a life to the financial degree of comfort that I want and um, all the time I put in school, it would really bum me out if I was not able to work. And I have thought before about the fact that Maybe if I run into a ton of ethical issues in Vermont, I could move to New Hampshire and work at their Catholic hospital. Um, but then on one hand, I there are so many things I dislike about Vermont because of the, the economy and the anti-religiousness of Vermont. But at the same time, I've lived here my whole life and I feel comfortable living here, so I don't really want to move. But if I had to, I, I would move and I could work at a Catholic hospital somewhere where hopefully they would not ask me to do anything against my conscience. I guess, yeah, I guess the question here or, or the second suggestion is really sort of the right fit. You know, are you are you a right fit for this particular, um, you know, this particular I, I feel job? that I am. Um, but... Then again, it, no one is the right fit to do things that are against their conscience. So, right. yeah, yeah, yeah I, an I hope to yeah. never have to do anything that is blatantly against my conscience and in, in my work. Diane, the the right fit type question. So, I think the good news, Elizabeth, is is that as a nurse, we still have a lot of vital job potentials in secular healthcare. Um, I've worked both in Catholic healthcare and secular healthcare systems. And honestly, I believe that most healthcare providers are in the profession to do the right thing, right? So that's the starting point. So I think to answer the question that Joe is asking is, would I be willing to take a job in a high risk, egregious type job position that would counter my conscience and would I take that job because I needed the financial money? And so here's my advice to, to most new Catholic nurses is that when, when you apply for a job in, in the world, because we're Catholic and we live in the world and we love the world because it's the gift that God has given us, um, working in a med surge unit, working in an ICU, working in an emergency department, all has its pluses and negatives, right? Working in a mother baby unit working in pediatrics. And I would say that in most of those clinical settings, a nurse can work with good conscience in all of those areas. The areas that raise the red flags would be a surgical center that required um, abortions, um, transitioning surgeries, um, and sterilizations and things like that. So as a Catholic nurse, um, I would be putting myself in a direct risk for cooperation to assist with a surgical abortion or direct sterilization. So it was my practice when I worked in neonatal ICU. Um, not I, I just never worked in labor and delivery. And if I did work in labor and delivery, I'd prefer to work labor and delivery in a Catholic healthcare system whose um, Catholic healthcare ethics truly aligned with Catholic moral teaching. That being said, working in, in the neonatal ICU, I, I was charged with um, taking care of a neonate and promoting life and not ending that life. So my first call to action for new nurses is apply in a secular hospital system in Vermont that in a practice area that you would you you could work in, which would be a med surge ICU unit. You know, the ethical complications are there. Um, and then we hopefully teach everyone how to navigate through those ethical questions when they arise. Um, if you find yourself in a situation where you're called to frequently participate in a practice area that violates your conscience, thankfully for nurses, I think that if your organization 
did not come, you know, abide or accept your conscience protections, you could graciously give your two weeks notice and yeah. pretty quickly get a job someplace else without violating your professional obligation. Um, and I, I hope that answers your question, Joe. Yeah, I do have something to add to that as well. Um, so I Please. am very interested in working in the OR. I, I love being in the OR. I love seeing the inside of bodies and the anatomy. I think it's just fascinating. But I'm kind of moving away from wanting to work in the OR because the main hospital in Vermont, they do abortions and quite certain they do sterilization surgeries. And so I'm afraid that if I worked in the OR that I could be required to float to do abortions and do um, participate in sterilization surgeries. I don't know what advice, Diane, you have on that, but um, it's just frustrating because OR is a field that I'm really interested in, but I'm afraid that I might be asked to do something against my conscience. And I think there are a lot of people um, who will respect your decision not to assist in abortion. But when it comes to something like a sterilization surgery or a gender transition surgery, um, people, I feel, are less likely to be sympathetic to your wishes to not cooperate in that. So I think that's a, a, an excellent point. And that was a practice area I didn't think of with, with my response. So I'm, I'm happy that you um, spoke about that. And our recommendation, uh, or at least my recommendation as a NCBC consult ethicist, is then to, that would be the situation that if you were having an interview, that you would need to have that dialogue with the hiring manager before you started uh, regarding those limitations for your practice. When, when I worked in the recovery room and the surgical ICUs and, and interacted a lot with operating room functioning, there'd be a circulating charge nurse and if the hospital hired you and you were clear that that was a practice area that you did not want to function on and they decided to hire you, as long as I think last week we read the ANA Code of Ethics for Nursing um, as to our practice guidelines and that you have a right to have those conscience protections. And as long as staffing requirements for that department could handle the assignments with you being placed in a different operating room suite for the day and covering certain surgeries, your colleagues could um, take those cases for you. Uh, we all know in clinical practice, especially if you were on call in that hospital in the OR, that if you were the on-call person for that day and you needed to go in for an emergency surgery, the likelihood of having someone substitute for you in that moment would be less likely than in a normal workday environment, even if your employer was willing to accommodate those conscience protections for you on a normal day-to-day -day functioning level. Um, and in, in that case, um, I would recommend that you worked at a Catholic healthcare system in the operating room, um, or you could work for a secular hospital system who had a, a wonderfully supportive staff that would accommodate for those needs for you. And we have spoken to healthcare professionals who have gone in with those requests and they have received positive reinforcement and open arms to work in that environment. And um, that pre-acknowledgement and commitment has been respected. And we have experiences with other healthcare workers where that has become a problematic scenario. Uh, so I, I wouldn't be able to predict for you in a certain state with a certain hospital, if that would be a likelihood or not. Um, you could always work in a surgical ICU post-operatively. You could always work in a PACU unit post-operatively because what also isn't frequently understood is that Catholic healthcare nurses believe in the intrinsic dignity of the person. And it doesn't matter what the person has done and what the person is dealing with in their life. I am still going to respect them as a human being and care for them in their uh, healthcare needs. So what does that mean? Um, if I randomly get assigned a person in the ICU who maybe had an abortion in an outside clinic who began to hemorrhage and they were transferred to my hospital, to my care in my ICU, of course. I would always take care of that individual who was 
who is experiencing that life-threatening side effect from something that they chose to do prior to my care. Um, I would never refuse the care of that human being, despite what they had chosen to do previously. And in that regard, I'm not interfering with my conscience by loving and caring for someone who is is suffering um, from decisions that they have made. Yeah. I'd just like to uh, to affirm, Diane, what you said about you know uh, people who and, and I've had numerous conversations with healthcare professionals and others who have had these conversations with their hiring managers about in, in these prickly areas, you know, in, in surgical areas and, and anesthesiologists as well too. And interestingly, in follow up conversations, um, I've been told that uh, in, in a lot of cases, the the, the scheduling managers or, or the clinical managers, whoever they are, are very accommodating or try to be as accommodating as they can as they can be. And in fact, sometimes coworkers come out of the woodwork, so to speak. People who have the same concerns but were you know didn't want to express them or were afraid to express them, and they would come up to the person and nudge them and say, "Hey, thank you for doing that," because you know that, that I've I've been worried about the same thing. So you never know, you know, the positive impact. But also, they, there's the question of, you know, in an emergent situation, you could be called into something and there may not be anybody else. And that's that's a big concern that a lot of people have that, you know, it's, you're not um, you're not scheduled for something. You're not intending. Some, nobody's really intending for you to be involved in a procedure that's that has some morally problematic elements to it. But you could be called in in a certain situation. So, again, a lot, you know, not giving a, a concrete answer, but 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 things to things to keep in mind. So third element or third um, practical suggestion, like to get Elizabeth and Diane, your take on, this is kind of the homework piece. So so I'll say uh, to people, third, know the policies of your employer, particularly those dealing with conscientious, conscientious objection. You can do this by asking for, usually from the human resources department, or obtain for yourself, if, if possible, a copy of your employer or your potential employer's conscience protection policy, assuming that it exists. Most healthcare institutions have written policy guidance that protect employees from being forced to participate in interventions that violate their closely held religious and or moral beliefs. And it's very important for you to know um, what you protect, how you're protected and how you're not protected, especially when there is the potential for ethical conflict with your job. It may also be good to have this information on hand when you have the, the conversation that we talked about earlier and Diane just mentioned again when you have that conversation with your employer. So Elizabeth, Diane, your comments on understanding or, or obtaining and understanding the your rights, your conscience protection rights as a health Yeah, that is very important. Um, and especially if something does happen, you can show your employer, these are the, your rules and I am abiding by your rules and you're the one <laughs> yeah. who is not abiding by the rules. Yep. Um, so yeah, that's it's a very important thing to understand and to obtain. I don't think that's something most hospitals make readily available. For example, in all the hospital trainings I've ever done, um, everywhere I've ever done clinical or been an employee, in the trainings, no one have ever has ever said this is where you find our ethical guidelines and your conscience mm-hmm. protection rights. No one has ever has ever said that in mm-hmm. all of the numerous trainings that they make you do when you uh, start working for a new hospital. Um, but it's definitely something very important to look into. Yeah, I, I would love to, and maybe some if there are some nursing students or even medical students or whoever who are going to work, you know, new hire orientation day one when the human resources person gets up and does the human resources spiel and they say, you know, does anybody have any questions and nobody ever does, uh, raise your hand and say, uh, can you give us, you know, can yeah. you give me your conscience protection policy? Um, it, it'd be, it'd be really interesting to, to see the reaction, not only of the individual, but also of, of the, the orientation, your fellow orientation, uh, attendees. But again, absolutely. I, you know, know what the policies of the institution are. Diane, your comments. So for new for new nurses, for nursing students, I think that this is another example of that hierarchical power imbalance, right? And sometimes we don't know what we don't know. So if if we aren't educated about our professional practice conscience protections, which many nursing students never hear about, how can they prepare themselves for an employment position 
kind of foreseeing difficulties that they'll have. And in that regard, none of us are ever fully prepared for circumstances that that we can't even wildly dream up in our imagination. And I think as a new nurse and even being a seasoned IC nurse, the shock of being asked to do something that was counter to our to my conscience left me speechless because some of these events, they become so emotional for us. Intrinsically, they're part of who we are. And sometimes we're not even aware that that is such an intrinsic part of, of who we are as a human being. And so nurses that get caught off guard with this in the middle of the night, um, even if they're prepared with verbalizing their conscience concerns to an employee before circumstances happen, um, because of kind of the it, there's there's a there's a mild trauma that occurs to violate our conscience. And if things are really busy and deep in the hospital, and we're working really hard to save one somebody's life, or we're really busy with acute care problems. That conscience piece is something that's difficult to verbalize in that moment. And then we find ourselves, because of the hierarchy balance, sometimes acting in ways that we did not intend. And that moral distress that can ensue because of that um, is, is problematic. The best way for all of us to handle these situations is to constantly engage in the dialogue constantly speak to others about potential actions that might harm the patient and our own intrinsic moral integrity. Um, So we don't ask to look at policies. Policies are boring, right? Policies are in a file cabinet somewhere. I think they're actually pretty interesting, to be honest with you. (laughs) Jose Lott loves policies. I do. We have our Catholic (laughs) Identity and Ethics Review Program. I do all the policies review. I think they're fascinating. Diane, you're you're trashing policies. No, I'm just No, I'm not trashing policies. I'm I'm just saying that when we're nurses and we want to be at the bedside with human beings, sometimes, you know, we're we're interested in the policies on an intervention. How how do I perform this medical intervention safely for the patient? But as far as the intrinsic organizational policies that, you know, we we didn't become human resource people. (laughs) But But I think it's a but I think it's important for nurses to know what their rights are, even if, even if nothing else. Just just bottom line, what what am I protected? What am I protected from? What am I not protected Absolutely. from? Absolutely. And it's a conversation that we should have with every new young nurse. There's new nurse residency programs popping up in most joint commission accredited hospitals. Nurses are placed gently under the wing of experienced nurses for an entire year so that they can be guided through um, this terrain in, in healthcare and nursing, which is fabulous. There's just not a six-week orientation and throw you out to the wolves, yeah. so to speak. And so I'm privileged to still um, be a big part of Jefferson's nurse residency program. And about nine to t- 10 months into the nurse residency, we have these heart-to-heart conversations with the new nurses about things that distress them in the middle of the night, things that they never knew was part of nursing practice that they might have moral distress over. And this is when we reintroduce that concept. Make sure you understand hospital policies. Make sure you understand your conscience rights protections because we might say it once or twice in nursing school or we might never say it in nursing school like you've experienced, Elizabeth. Um, And it's something that hospital systems because of joint commission accreditation and higher academic learning for nursing education is trying to implement across all healthcare systems. And we can be advocates for that. As Catholic nurses, we can also be advocates for the education for our colleagues, like Joe talked about in the ER. I mean, OR, people really are craving the ability to have a voice um, and they don't know the words to express their needs for those conscience protections. Yeah. So that's well, an important reason why we're doing the podcast, so that yeah, there can absolutely. be an increased a- awareness. Yeah. So for Elizabeth and for for any new nursing or, or medical students as, as well, I think it applies to them as, 
applies to them too. You know, as you're going through, you know, when you when you do get a full time job, wherever that may be, and whatever, if, whether it's a, like a nurse residency program or whatever the training program is, look out for these things. As Diane was saying, is you know, at, at some point, six months down the road, eight months down the road, ten months down the road, do, do you have a conversation about you know what is it that causes you moral distress in the middle of the night or in the middle of the day too? You know, depending on on what it may be. So, look out for this and ask for those. Uh, types of programs uh, could be a really good thing. All right, moving on. Fourth, um, and this is this will be the uh, how your actions are perceived by others. Bit of advice. So something you would want to keep in mind is the possibility of scandal. Now, again, Elizabeth, I'm going back to the question that you posed um, originally about you know helping with the um, with the administration of medications for a person who is so-called transitioning here. So keep in mind the possibility of scandal. If you take a position, if you take this a particular position with a, a you know in a medical system, whatever that may be, and family members, friends, fellow parishioners, etc., come to knowledge of the work that you're doing, i.e., if you're you know continually providing medications for people who are so-called transitioning, these people may be led to believe that you accept what the employer does and stands for as morally permissible. This could lead others to accept or even participate in morally problematic acts and ultimately lead to sin. This is the theological definition of scandal. Just be aware of this reality and ready to address it. So in other words, you know, Elizabeth, as you're moving into your nursing field, you may be working uh, for an institution that does things that are morally problematic. And whether you're involved directly or not, the the fact that you're working for this organization could give people the perception that you believe that what they're doing is morally permissible. So, Elizabeth, your your comment on that, and then we'll go to um, Diane. Well, in regards to just in general working at an institution that does things that are morally objectionable, if you live in a place like Vermont, you're, you're going to have to do that um, because there's no hospital in Vermont, <laughs> no, as far as I know, who does not participate in morally objectionable things. Um, but in terms of directly cooperating, I think there is a lot of thought of, oh, well, if I don't do this, someone else is going to do this anyway, so I might as well just do it. But that's not really the best stance to take because maybe if you don't participate in something morally objectionable. No, maybe, not at all. <laughs> maybe um, people will think, oh, yeah, maybe this is not a good thing to do. Maybe they'll realize that, and maybe the patient will realize, yeah, maybe this isn't what I want to do. Um, and also, I think sometimes patients are encouraged to do things that are morally not the best idea because it's just taken for granted that oh if you are questioning your gender then you you must want to transition or go farther with this um there's there i feel like there's not a lot of talk about oh do you do you really want to do this and is this really what's going to make you happy and be the best thing it's kind of like if a patient posts an idea um and um this is an even more controversial issue but for example with abortion if someone wants to terminate their pregnancy i feel like in the medical field there's not a lot of talk about do you really want to do this and these are the long-term consequences of this it's kind of just like oh you want to terminate your pregnancy let's give you an abortion in in some cases, um, there there are people who sit down and we'll talk with them about. Well, you have these uh, um, options of adoption, and um, you're gonna have to live with this the rest of your life. But in in some situations, that's not what happens. So if you do object to participating in something, that can also make the patient think about, hey, maybe I maybe I don't really want to do this, and it can help the patient to make the more morally okay decision that will in the long run um, be better for them. And by doing that, you're advocating for your patient as well. Yeah, sure. Diane, your, your, your take on the, the scandal question. So we get a lot of questions from healthcare providers uh, regarding cooperation. Um, and, and I, I guess I, just want, and, and this was something that I had difficult with and took 30 years of 
clinical practice to kind of wrap my head around. Um, you know, as Catholic nurses and healthcare providers, we're called to live in a, a sinful world and to be the light of Christ for those who are in need. And none of us are without sin. Um, and so I think that we're interpreted a lot of times as being judgmental and discriminatory. And that's the like secular comeback to many of our conscience protections. And then we're actively accused of being like terrible human beings because we won't adhere to X, Y, Z. And, and, and strong language is being utilized against our, our Catholic faith traditions. Sure is. Um, and, and, you know, we were, we were called to suffer for Christ. And so this is part of the suffering. So I really think that the way in which we act to others needs to be Christ-centered. And that's to constantly exhume the love that Christ had for humanity that was a sinful humanity. Like Christ walked among us. He walked with the sinners. He dined with the tax collectors and the prostitutes. And we are called to do the same thing. But what we're talking about here is cooperation and scandal, right? Christ lived with us who were sinners, but he did not participate in our sinfulness. And that is such an obligation that overwhelms me, right? How can we do that? And only, only through the love of Christ can we each do that. And then we need to carefully look at our actions, the intentions of our actions and those actions and how they affect others. And so in Catholic healthcare, when I speak to healthcare providers that are going through this, or even who have participated with immoral actions, and then they are horrified to find out about it. Um, if we act judgmentally, judgmentally to people without the love of Christ, then we are doing a disservice in the world that we're called to serve in. And so I, I try to gently pull out a, a, a wonderful document that we have at the NCBC that's a, it's a, a summary of cooperation with moral evil, and it's prepared by the experts in the NCBC who have done entire dissertations on cooperation with evil, which is way out of my league as a nurse as well, but I've learned so much about. And these documents are really important for us to take a look at. It, it would probably be high on my list of providing this information to all Catholic nurses. It is high on my list of priorities that I introduce to anybody in my bioethics class at the Catholic um, University where I work at Ave Maria. Um, and that is something that I did not do when I worked at a secular education center. Um, but what I could do at the secular education center was go over the process of ethical decision-making by utilizing the principle of double effect because, because it was in my nursing textbook. So it was, it was portrayed as a secular principle, but with principalism with Beecham and Childress, which was, had to have been a, a, a publication error, or maybe it wasn't. Um, so I could, I could discuss applying our moral decision-making based upon the principle of double effect in secular healthcare, but I couldn't talk about the cooperation with moral evil, that, the resource that we have on the NCBC. So I got a little off topic again, but I think that it's so important for us to portray in this way. Yeah. Um, Dan, which document is that? Because I'll link it to the, uh, to the podcast. Oh, sure. So it's, um, it was prepared by the NCF, NCBC ethicists as far back as 2013, but it's, it's, it's a very concise summary of how to navigate through ethical decision-making and, and the proximity of, of cooperation. Yeah. Um, and we also have uh, referral versus transfer of care as well too. That's kind of a practical application of that too. We could we'll we'll we'll, we'll we have so many those. rich. I know we got a lot of stuff right um, available on the NCBC's website. So I encourage anybody to do a Google search: NCBC Moral Cooperation, NCBC Administration of Morphine to the Dying, NCBC <laughs> Cooperation with um, Post-op Surgical Perinatal problems. What We have so many resources. And then, of course, a plug for Father Tad with his Making Sense of Bioethics is also wonderful resources for anyone um, with addition to our consult line. Um, so I, I apologize. I got off topic again um, with uh, that risk for scandal. I, I, would, I would never work in 
an abortion clinic because that would be scandalous. I'd be go, you know, I'd go to mass every Sunday. I would be teaching eighth grade confirmation CCD students, and somebody would say, "But Diane, Nurse Diane, you're working at the pregnancy clinic," and. I could use every excuse in the book as to the good that I thought I was doing there, but it would be directly cooperating and be scandalous for that persona of my lived experience of my Catholic faith. Yeah. And, and that's an extreme example. <laughs> but but actually, as you were talking, I was thinking if uh, if anybody has seen the movie Unplanned, that was Abby Johnson. That's what that's exactly what she was doing. She knew she was she was working. She was the manager of a Planned Parenthood. And, but she was she was rationalizing, and she would say this: she was rationalizing her actions, saying, "Look at the good that I'm bringing." Until something happened one day that caused her to realize, Diane, just what she said. So yeah, it's 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 it's, it's real stuff in the world. Last bit of uh, practical advice um, that I'd like to uh, present to you and get your get your take on um, is this. So finally. And, and this, again, this is to students or, or to people who are uh, potential employees in, in various fields. You should evaluate the good you can possibly, possibly bring to the organization versus the difficulties that your potential job may cause. What does this mean? On the one hand, you could be, Elizabeth, you could be a beacon of truth within a particular organization, a voice that offers a faithful Catholic perspective on issues. The fact of the matter is that we desperately need faithful Catholic medical professionals and nurses to counter the insanity that's taken over the medical profession and turning down a position or choosing not to enter the field, Elizabeth again, would prevent you from playing this very important role. On the other hand, you may be stepping into the fire, so to speak, in this position. You will likely face some sticky ethical situations that will call you to stand up for the truth, sometimes even challenging the powers that be within the organization. Are you able and willing to do this? Do you have the strength and other necessary qualities of character to do this. And in, in truth, further an ongoing prayer, discernment, and discussion with others is necessary. So Elizabeth, it's kind of the weighing the, the good that I can do, as Diane was kind of just alluding to, the good that you can do versus the, the, the challenges that you may um, face. Yeah, I definitely believe that I can bring good into the healthcare field and this is something I knew from the beginning going into healthcare that I would have to deal with controversial issues especially with where I live right um, and I really hope to continue to have the courage to stand up for what I believe in and um, I I have managed to um to have the integrity to not agree with all the things that my colleagues have said. Um, for example, um, with uh, Roe v. Wade being overturned, pretty much everyone I know is so upset about that. Um, but I'm like, no, I I'm glad it was overturned. And I try really try to bring up points as to why this could be a good thing. And um, I, I try to be the light um, with my colleagues when I feel like everyone around me has very, very different morals. And there is this just very big culture of what the patient thinks is best is what is best with regards to controversial right. issues. And yeah, I, I really, I hope I can yeah. continue to bring good to um, the healthcare field. Uh, but that really, it, it it requires a lot of courage. Yes, it does. Yeah. And I, I just want to let you know, to Elizabeth, you personally, and to any other, you know, young healthcare professionals who are out there who are experiencing the same kind of concerns. Yeah. I mean, we're here to help you and we're here to support you at the NCBC. I've, I've had many conversations with people in your position and I always tell them as much as it may seem that you're alone or you're on an island, you're really not. There, there's a lot of people out there who who agree with you, who, who um, seek to practice medicine or, or practice nursing in, in the way you do. We're here for you. Um, and in fact, we need more than ever, we need good, faithful, Catholic uh, medical professionals in the field to, to you know, to try to to turn the boat a little bit 
And, um, and, and so I, I just encourage you and everybody else who's listening to, you know, to, um, to be strong, to pray, to ask God for, for guidance, for strength, and look to us here at the NCBC. We can, you know, we, I always, you know, we're sort of in our bit of our ivory tower here and, and we're dealing with these ethical situations, but we're dealing with them, you know, a step removed. You guys are the ones who are dealing with it on the front lines level. Um, but we're here for you and, and please do take, um, to please, you know, take advantage of anything that we can offer you because, because uh, we're here to support you. Absolutely. Diane, your take on this issue. This is a wonderful question. I mean, I think for Catholic nurses and a lot of nurses, um, you know, I, I've had the privilege of working with nurses from every faith tradition and people who come into the profession to truly help other people is the majority, um, believing in the intrinsic dignity of the other and the sacredness of life is is something that's really not a foreign concept for many, many nurses that I've met. I think it's the rare nurse who doesn't believe that this is a special vocation. And being a nurse is a, is a vocation. And, um, you know, I was blessed to also in my young adult life be asked to teach um, catechism to eighth graders in preparation for the sacrament of um, confirmation. And, and, you know, that journey was a special grace for me as well in my nursing profession. Um, to be able to teach young people the gifts of the Holy Spirit and how we utilize those gifts of the Holy Spirit in our everyday life is something that I think I really needed to be reminded of in, in my nursing profession. So that gift of being asked to teach catechism was something that actually then emboldened my nursing career and profession in a yearly way of really, really having faith and confidence that the Holy Spirit can provide for us in our mission and vision and vocation as a healthcare provider. Um, because we need every single one of those gifts of the Holy Spirit to do what we do in the world that we live in. And we're not going to do it perfect. And I guess the, the last big piece of advice I have for everyone is that be patient and kind with yourself. You know, there, there's so much that is asked of us on the nursing floor. We can't do all the good that we want to do. And some days we feel that we neglect patients because of our competing priorities, because of call lights going off and the phones ringing. And, you know, we just pray every single day that we are who we need to be for the people that we need to be for and that we that we endure um, probably my biggest fault as a nurse is I beat myself up day after day for the things that I couldn't do or the things that I thought I didn't do well enough or the things that I felt that I did wrong. You know, and then then we don't become that light for others that we need to be. Um, and this this job was not made for those of weak of heart. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the only person that can help me through it every day is is the whole is God, right? The, the relationship I have with God, the father, the son, and the Holy spirit, because without that, it might be a job that's insurmountable. Yeah. Well, very, very well stated. We're coming up on time. So I, I just like to, I got two very quick, uh, kind of final questions for each of you. And then if you have any words of wisdom. So Diane, I, I just wondering if you could briefly um, respond to, or, or briefly comment on where things are going, if they're getting better or worse. So in, in part one of the interview, you said you've been practicing nursing since the mid 1980s. And um, so you've seen a lot uh, in a number of different contexts. I'm just wondering if, if you could just briefly address from a from the perspective of conscience and conscience-related issues, are things getting better or worse for nurses in the medical field as a whole? So that's a loaded question, right? Very much a loaded question. So I think give me, a, give me a brief answer. A brief answer. So with technology, with technological advances, with the political polarization of demonizing everyone of different opinions, in that regard, it's worse. It's more challenging. Um, however, there are elements that I think are better. Um, and so I wanted to end with the positive parts of how, how Diane, could you say that things are getting better? We're talking, we're talking about conscience. We didn't before 
we are the beacons of light to engage in this dialogue for people who are unknowing because people can't know what they don't know. So that that makes us the light in the darkness. And that's why I think it's so powerful and so important to dismantle the myths and the prejudice against Catholic healthcare and Catholic nurses to say, no, we work based upon evidence-based practice. We believe in science and we believe in good technology, um, but we also believe in the holistic nature of the human being and that we can't separate body, mind, and spirit. Nursing knows this. We, we adhere to the precepts of holistic care um, and as Catholic nurses, we can do that even on a higher level. Yeah. Great words of wisdom from you, Diane. Elizabeth, um, after listening, well, participating and listening uh, for these these two episodes here, what do you look forward to in terms of your nursing career? And I what do you fear? I really look forward to everything I can do to better the situation of my patients and all the opportunities I'm going to have to learn and to help people. And what I fear is um, there are situations where hospitals don't abide by their conscience guidelines. And there are situations where hospitals basically tell nurses, if you don't participate in this morally objectionable thing, then you will be fired. Um, and that, that, that does not happen all the time, but that, that does happen. And so that's probably the main thing right. that I'm afraid of. Yeah. And that firing of nurses happens yes, in Vermont. In Vermont. There's, a, there's a case. Yeah. Yes. Which yep. I'm sure you're aware of. Um, any final words of wisdom for our listeners? Diane gave us some, I kind of alluded to that a few seconds ago, but Elizabeth, any final words of wisdom you have for people who are listening to this podcast? Don't let being afraid um, keep you from doing what you're being called to do. And don't let um, I love that what you I love it what you <laughs> and um, don't let what you think others are going to say or think of you prevent you from doing the right thing. Very very well said. And that's Diane. that's so wonderful, right? Like, don't be afraid. Sometimes that's easier said than done. But yeah. but don't be afraid. Um, John you're Paul never II, alone. Be not afraid. Be not afraid. And my best advice for all brand new nurses who are worrying about maybe being um, penalized for your conscience and your beliefs, I would suggest to not be alone like I felt for many, many years. Uh, I had friends who you know, had the same faith tradition as me, and we were supportive of one another. But I was largely unaware of the magnitude of support for Catholic nurses. And so my best advice for you as we close this podcast is become active in professional organizations such as the Catholic Nurses Association and the Catholic Medical Association and the NCBC so that when you experience things that you never expected to experience, you can reach out to people who are only a FaceTime phone call away. Um, and, and the world has become better in that regard, that we can really be there for each other and know that we're supported in not only our professional organizations that we um, can belong to, um, but, but also in our faith traditions that we belong to. So make sure that you jot down American Catholic Nurses Association, the Catholic Medical Association, they have great resources online as well. And um, just for a plug for the International Catholic Nursing Conference that's in Doylestown, Pennsylvania, August 2nd, 3rd, and 4th, it, it's a great opportunity for us to collaborate and brainstorm to be supportive with one and for one another. Yeah. And I'll put links to those uh, organizations in the show notes. Elizabeth Nekrevich, Diana Kret, thank you for joining me on Bioethics On Air. And thank you for a I thought the first episode was really good. I think the second one's even better. Thank, Thank you. you very much for joining me today. Thank you, Joe, for having us. For more information on the topics discussed today and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, 
where you can subscribe to our newsletter, as well as our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics on Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at jzalot at ncbcenter.org. Archived editions of the podcasts are available on our website. Please hover on the Blogs and Podcasts button on the main page and then click Bioethics on Air. Finally, if you enjoy our podcasts, please subscribe to them. And if you would like to support them, as well as the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, go to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and click on the red Donate button. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.